Do baseball. This is what our fifth or sixth? Sixth. Sixth? All right. I think, no. Five? Six? Five, six. We started this uh, as like an end segment on uh, another podcast that we do. So uh, let's just. Whatever. Welcome to Sean Ned's Do Baseball. <laughs> I'm Sean. I'm Ed. Uh, we come together once or twice a month and uh, share a story from baseball history. Uh, it could be a person, event, uh, even rule changes that have happened and why. Uh, either way, we're here to talk some baseball history. Uh, today, Edzy has a story for me. I don't know what it's going to be about. Uh, yeah, uh, and it's uh, February now, so February is Black History Month. So I thought uh, maybe I would tell you a story from the Negro Leagues. Um, so I uh, looked up some some interesting players who might have some some cool profiles. There's a lot a lot of history. Yeah, so uh, that's one of the great things I think about doing this this podcast is that it's, it's like challenging us to look into parts of baseball history that. You know, mm-hmm. you don't mm-hmm. normally see so much. Yeah, you, you definitely get some some interesting stories. So, what do you got for us today? Okay, uh, actually, before I start, I'm gonna say that you should follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball at Doing Baseball, and you can also follow our other Twitter at Bird Baby Birds. And today, uh, Sean, I have a story for you, and it begins like this: May seventeenth, nineteen o three. All right. James Thomas Bell was born in Starkville, Mississippi, the son of Jonas Bell and Mary Nichols. Reared in nearby Octoc community, James had two sisters and four brothers. The 1910 census shows him as the fourth of seven children living with his widowed mother in Sesums Township, just outside Starkville. His mother sharecropped with her brother on their father's land, but the young James, quote, never did have any intentions of farming. He later said, he being James Thomas Bell, all I had in mind, we used to play ball around, and I just had baseball on my mind. He's just baseball. He's straight baseball. Yep. Uh, He did, however, work in the creamery at the Agricultural and Mechanical College in Starkville, which is now part of Mississippi State University, and at its Agricultural Experiment Station where he learned to grade cotton. In 1920, the 17-year-old Bell left Starkville for St. Louis, Missouri, to live with his brothers and attend high school. He planned to go to night school, but he lived near a park, and instead of classes played baseball in the park with people in the neighborhood. Wait a minute, no, but he was he was born in Mississippi, right? Yep. Starkville, and, Mississippi. And he lived in but he's going to high school in Missouri? Yep. That seems like a that's yeah, all right. That's it, Yep. <laughs> Bell said in a May 1974 interview for the Center for the Center for Oral History and the Cultural Heritage at the University of Southern Mississippi that since, quote, school started before the sun went down, I didn't go to school, but later on I did go to school after I was grown. I went two years of high school in evening school. Ah, all right. So he's just playing baseball. Yeah, he's mostly baseball focused. Yeah. Yeah. 
I should mention how you were talking before. He went to Missouri because his older brothers were there. His only no, I, I got his older brother. There. It's just, uh, <laughs> it's, but it, it, I guess his older brothers were like adult older brothers. Then. I guess so, that yeah. that makes that well, makes he's more sense. Fourth of seven children, so probably yeah. All right. He also said in that interview, "quote Yes, the thing of it was my mother always said that she wanted us to go as far in school as we could." She said that we didn't need a whole lot of education right here at that time. A lot of people didn't need it at that time. But you might live in the days that you need an education for you to live. In my time, she said, I thought that she was an old mama, but she was around 42 years old when I left. She said, well, I didn't have a chance to go to school or to have much schooling. Sometimes they would go two months and a half or three months according to the weather. They lived in the country too, she said. I just hope that you will go and live in a bigger city where you have more opportunities to go to school. So we got large enough so we could go away. All right. So his mom sounds like a smart lady. Yeah. Uh, Just knowing that, hey, if you live in Mississippi right now, you don't need school. But you know what? You might need it in the future, right, so yeah. go to Missouri. Sounds like, yeah, he has a, a well-grounded mother, at least. And now he's off to Missouri. Yep. So he signed as a knuckleball pitcher with the Compton Hill Club. You didn't Cubs. tell me he had a knuckleball. That should have been, like, start of the story. <laughs> that's that's a key. That's key for you? I don't know. I just... I don't think that's that relevant. All right, all right. Move anyway, on. Anyway, he signed as a knuckleball pitcher with the Compton Hill Cubs, a black semi-pro baseball team. Until the team broke up in August 1921, he played with Compton Hill on Sundays and holidays while he worked for a packing company during the week. For 1922, Bell moved to the East St. Louis Cubs, a semi-pro team that paid him $20 weekly to pitch on Sundays. All right. At some point in 1922, Bell joined the St. Louis Stars of the Negro National League. As a pitcher with an assortment of curves, knucklers, and screwballs thrown from any of three release points, he got his mature-sounding nickname, Cool Papa, as a 19-year-old rookie. (laughs) Wait, why is he Cool Papa? Say that again. He got his mature-sounding nickname because he was a, a pitcher with an assortment of curves, knucklers, screwballs thrown from any three release points. <laughs> that doesn't, yo, you're a good pitcher, no, man. That, not, you're deceptive. That's not why. Cool, cool papa. That's not why. All right, all right. I'll get to that. All right, you can. The legendary switch-hitting center fielder had started his career as a left-handed pitcher. On a road trip, his teammates awakened him in a train berth to tell them tell him that a newspaper story reported that the teenager unexpectedly would be the starting pitcher in the upcoming game. That news did not make Bell nervous. And after winning the ball game by one run, contributing a home run in the process, Ah. and striking out Oscar Charleston, the best hitter at that time, Mm -hmm. his teammates called him cool. All right. Bell told baseball writer John Holloway, they said that he's so cool, he don't get excited. So he just he's, he's cool-headed. He's just... Yeah. St. Louis Stars manager Bill Gatewood said, We've got to add something to it. We'll call him Cool Papa. <laughs> Thus was born the legendary name. How many drinks do you think I had before? It was, yeah, we can't just call him Cool Bell. we got to call him Cool Papa. That's it. It was the Roaring Twenties. <laughs> 
I'm sure. I'm sure that would have. Yeah. <laughs> Beyond the 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 racism and the fact that you're playing in a segregated league, I'm sure. I'm sure that was a, probably a fun time. Yep. Yeah. Probably not. No. By 1924, at the urging of manager Bill Gatewood, Bell began working on his defensive skills and appearing more in the outfield. Bell ultimately made a permanent move to center field and stopped pitching. Before becoming an outfielder, Bell batted right-handed and threw left-handed. His transition to the outfield was aided by learning to bat as a switch hitter. When he batted left-handed, his base running speed was even more problematic for opponents because he was a couple of steps closer to first base. Biographer Sean McCormack points out that Bell did not have a strong throwing arm. However, Bell's speed allowed him to play a very shallow in the outfield and still catch balls that were hit behind him. All right, so we got a little Billy Hamilton type uh, yeah. type player here. Very speedy. Very speedy. Good outfielder. Not much of an arm. All right. Speed becomes a thing of legend. All right. Pitchers tried to avoid issuing walks to Bell because he was often able to steal both second and third base, scoring a run on the next play. Bell could also sometimes score a run if he was on first base and the batter got a base hit. Holy shit. Bell often hit two hoppers to the infield and beat the throw to first base for a hit. He also went from first to third on a bunt and (laughs) scored from second on a sacrifice fly. His specialty was stealing two bases on one pitch and scoring from second on a slowly hit ground ball. Once he scored from first base on a bunt against the Bob Lemon All-Stars, which featured major league players. Bell described the style of play on occasions when the Negro League players faced the white teams in exhibitions. Quote, We played a different kind of baseball than the white teams. We played tricky baseball. We did things they didn't expect. We'd bunt and run in the first inning. Then when they would come up in for a bunt, we'd hit away. We always crossed them up. We'd run the bases hard and make the fielders throw too quick and make wild throws. We'd fake a steal home and rattle the pitcher into a balk. Cool Papa Bell is considered one of professional baseball's foremost base stealers. In 1933, he was credited with 175 stolen bases in a 200-game season. 175? 175. Yeah. What is it? I just want to also note how awesome it was that they just fucked with the white guys. Yeah. Back and it's just like, yeah, fuck them. We're We're going to cross them up. It's amazing because we still like kind of, I'm sure at the time there was probably, wow, they are playing like idiots, you know? And it's just like. That's not the right way to play. That's not the right way to. And we still are having that conversation to this day of, you know. Just now it's more about expression. Yeah, about than, bat flips and shit. Yeah, but oh my god, like, <laughs> that's awesome. After watching Bell in 1937, the sports editor of the Denver Post wrote, quote, All these years I've been looking for a player who could steal first base. I've found my man. His name is Cool Papa Bell. Former Negro Leagues player Buck O'Neill, the first African-American coach in Major League history, wrote in his autobiography that Bell was fast, but, quote, base running isn't only about speed. It's about technique, cutting the corners and keeping your balance, and cool papa, he was a master of all of that. Bell's speed as an outfielder and around the bases inspired numerous stories, some real and others exaggerated. According to Robert Peterson's According to Robert Peterson in Only the Ball Was White, 
teammate Jimmy Crutchfield recalled that when, quote, Bell hit one back to the pitcher, everybody would yell, hurry. (laughs) He was reportedly clocked circling the bases in an astonishing 12 seconds. Holy shit. So, yeah. That's 12 seconds. That's, I don't uh, think I could run to first base in 12 seconds. You could run. I think I, well, I mean, I think the average first, I think it's good if you're at like three and a half, but even if you run at one base, holy shit, your cat's rubbing up on Get my Get out of here, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, because, yeah, well, that's three seconds of base, right? That's that's absolutely, yeah. on. I think it's it's fast if you're like 13 or 14 seconds for the whole base. Like, anyways, that's an insane amount of speed. The most incredible story is that Bell hit a single up the middle and was called out when hit by his own batted ball as he slid into second base. Okay, that's not true. <laughs> I'm gonna call shenanigans. <laughs> that one's not true. Well, it says I, right here. It, no, that one's the most incredible you story. You literally said. Some of the stories were made up because of how legendary his speed was. That That is made up. I'm calling that one. Okay, that that's one you're marking down. <laughs> well, how true? inept were the fielders if a ball was hit up the middle and he rounded It the was p- a more leisurely time. <laughs> They're like, oh, the ball's going Nice out. hit. Nice <laughs> contact, cool papa. Oh, you're out. <laughs> Maybe that was strategic. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Bell led the Stars to league titles in 1928, 1930, and 1931. While with the Stars, he played alongside close friend and shortstop Willie Wells and first baseman Mule Suttles. That's an amazing name. I know. Like, these names back in the day, these ballplayers had the best fucking names. (laughs) Well, apparently you just needed a drunk manager. (laughs) (laughs) Papa. Cool Papa Bell. (laughs) He moved to the Detroit Wells of the East-West League when the NNL disbanded. Mm-hmm. Bell announced that the Kansas City Monarchs and the Mexican Winter Leagues, or sorry, Bell bounced to the Kansas City Monarchs and the Mexican Winter Leagues until 1933 when he found home with the Pittsburgh Crawfords in the reorganized NNL. Mm-hmm. In Pittsburgh, he played with Ted Page and Jimmy Crutchfield to form what is considered by many to have been the best outfield in the Negro Leagues. On the 1936 Crawfords team, Bell was one of six players who were subsequently inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Perhaps best known and most humorous story about Cool Papa's amazing speed involves Satchel Paige, a teammate of his with the Crawfords. Paige repeated this story many times, quote, Cool was so fast he could turn out the light and jump in bed before it got dark. (laughs) Wait. Okay. The origin of this tale is an event that took place when Bell and Paige Please were roommates on a road trip. Bell checked into the hotel room first and noticed a short in the light switch. <laughs> there was a delay between when the switch was flipped and when the light went off. When Paige arrived, Bell made a bet with him that he could <laughs> jump in bed. There, sorry, that he could turn off the light and be under the covers before it became dark. He accomplished the feat to the amusement of both athletes. In his 1967 autobiography, Maybe I'll Pitch Forever, Page wrote, quote, If Cool Papa had known about colleges or if colleges had known about Cool Papa, Jesse Owens would have looked like he was walking. That's a, that's a pretty strong statement right there. Yep. Owens, track and field gold medalist at the Olympic Games of 1936, traveled one year with a team from Toledo and would race fans or horses before the game for entertainment. Despite several opportunities, (laughs) 
Owens refused to race against cool Papa Bell. Can you a, a man that races horses refused to race this this human? Yeah. That is ah, that is amazing. That's how fast cool Papa was. Well, that, I just I find it amazing first of all that they were like, "Hey, we're going to take you around and race some horses." <laughs> <laughs> and someone was, I mean, obviously you're trying to you know, you're a sprinter, you're a world-famous sprinter. They, Obvious- did, they did a lot of weird sports and animal stuff back in the day. Have you heard about donkey baseball? I think I've heard about that's donkey. For, that's a that's, whole nother that's a thing. Whole, that's going to be a whole So this thing. guy, Jesse Owens, was afraid of this guy's speed. Yeah. That's like, that's all you should have said. Just like, cool Papa Bill. That's Jesse Col- Owens that's, was afraid of him. That's the, the, Coles, that's the Coles notes of this, <laughs> of this uh, podcast. Uh, also, the Satchel Page story was pretty amazing. Yeah. In Ken Burns Baseball... Uh, Bell was described as being so fast that he once scored from first on a sacrifice bunt. In an exhibition game against white all-stars, Bell is said to have broken for second on a bunt and run with Page at the plate. By the time the ball reached Page, Bell was almost to second and rounded the bag. Seeing the third baseman had broken towards home to field the bunt, the catcher Roy Party of the Boston Red Sox ran to third to cover the bag and anticipated return throw from first Mm -hmm. to his surprise bell rounded third and brushed by him on the way home pitcher murray dixon of the st louis cardinals had not thought to cover home with the catcher moving up the line and bell scored standing up so the catcher covered third nobody covered home yeah so he beat the throw to third and just kept on fucking trucking that's right that's amazing bell once circled the bases in 13.1 seconds on a soggy field in chicago he claimed that he had done it in as few as 12 seconds in dry conditions. I mean, yeah, well, I'm believing it at this point. Yeah. In 1937, Bell left the Crawfords when owner Gus Greenlee defaulted on player salaries. Bell satchel paid... Defaulted? He just stopped paying them? He just stopped paying them. That's bullshit. Okay, well, good for him for leaving. Yep. Bell, Satchel Page, and other players went to the Dominican Republic to play on a team assembled by dictator Rafael Trujillo. So you go from a guy that won't pay you to playing for a dictator. <laughs> it gets better. Oh. <laughs> Trujillo felt that baseball championship would strengthen his ruling power, and he kept the players <laughs> under armed supervision. Okay. This I feel like this story started out a little rough. We were a little rusty on the mics, but holy shit, this has gotten good. Here's a story about Rafael Trujillo. <laughs> Jesus. Rafael Trujillo was a Dominican politician, soldier, and dictator who ruled the Dominican Republic from February 1930 until his assassination in May 1961. <laughs> he served as president from 1930 to 1938 and again from 1942 to 1952 ruling for the rest of the time as an unelected military strongman. So in 1952 it was just like, look, look, look no more, we all know I'm in charge, so just fuck all I'm the the boss. I'm the boss, alright. Under figurehead presidents. Uh So he had his his puppets installed or whatever. Yeah, okay. His 31 years in power to Dominicans, known as the Trujillo era, is are considered one of the bloodiest eras ever in the Americas, as well as a time of a personality cult when monuments to Trujillo were in abundance. Trujillo and his regime were responsible for many deaths, including between 20,000 and 30,000 in the infamous Parsley Massacre. Right, but he play, paid his ball players, right? 
I don't know if he paid them. He <laughs> I'm was sure just, he, no, he just would, go and play for them unless this, they were kidnapped. This, Im, this research implies that he was just like, I want to win baseball and I, I will kill you if. Is that your you, impression? You aren't good. No, no. I, I kind of started, and I was, was like, like, "Fuck no, it, no, I'm not no, gonna no, do you're that." Not, no, that's never a good idea. Yeah, I'm no, not gonna do that. Uh, that is the, uh, yeah, no. I but like, I mean, obviously he was awful, but I wondered, like, oh, we this could be a whole other podcast, but just the, do you want to hear the, what the roots part... of the baseball love in Dominican? Like, when did it start with him? Like, was he just the one that was just like, "I love baseball," so for thirty years, everyone's gonna love everyone's baseball. Everyone's gonna play baseball, or I'll kill you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, that parsley massacre yeah. sounds fucked up, so I don't mean to. <laughs> the parsley massacre in Spanish, El Corte, which means the cutting, oh. took place in October 1937 against Haitians living in the Dominican Republic's northwest frontier and in certain parts of the contiguous Chiabo region. Dominican army troops who came from different areas of the country carried out the massacre on the direct orders of the Dominican dictator, Haitian President Eli Lesco put the death toll at 12,168 in 1953. The Haitian historian Jean Price Mars cited 12,136 deaths and 2,419 injuries. In 1975, Joaquin Balazur, the Dominican Republic's interim foreign minister at the time of the massacre, put the number of dead at 17,000. Other estimates compiled by the Dominican historian Bernardo Vega went as high as 35,000. Holy shit. Okay. So lots and lots of people died. Yeah. And yeah, so it was kind of like, if, yeah, if you don't know the Dominican and Haiti, are, it's a one big island that's kind of divided in half for the most part. So it was like towards the Haitian border. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dark time. Dark time. While playing for Chajulo, the team members began to fear that losing might threaten their lives. Oh, dear. Author Mark Rabowski describes an experience with the team that was related to him by Crutchfield. After one loss, the players were said to have been met at the hotel by an army officer who warned the team not to lose again, <laughs> firing gunshots at the walls of the hotel courtyard. Jesus. Oh, my. Bell was said to have been crying and was wanting cool? to leave He's the Dominican cool Republic. Anymore. He's not, not cool. cool. He's sad, Papa Bell. <laughs> He's terrified, He's Papa, scared Bell. Papa Bell. Yeah. Oh, my God. Ultimately, the team won the league championship. <laughs> Damn right they did. Finishing ahead of two other clubs by four games or less. The second place team featured several Negro League players, Cuban star Luis Titon. Senior, Tian Senior, and manager Martin Digio, a future Hall of Famer. The third place club was intentionally composed of mostly Dominican players and only two Negro leaguers who were on its roster. Trujillo was disappointed that a $30,000 team of Americans had barely beaten the competition, <laughs> so his league was disbanded the next year, uh, and did. no organized baseball was played in the Dominican Republic for 12 years. Jeez, what the So I don't fuck? think this guy started no. the love of baseball. Well, maybe it was because maybe it was they all rebe- hated yeah, him, and they were rebe- like, that baseball yeah. thing was fun, and then you took it away. Yeah. Yeah. Like, baseball is the rebellion. That this, is, this in itself is just like, what the fuck? Like... Oh yeah, my that God! Is probably we, no, we got one yeah, of us has to do yeah, the history gonna, of baseball in the Dominican. Yeah, like, we're Jesus look Christ, that is that is he just. <laughs> but they won. I know, but he was like, "You didn't win by enough." 
This is some serious. You didn't you win Jay, by enough. You think, Fuck this. We're not doing this anymore. It's like you think Red Sox and Yankees fans are bad. <laughs> Jesus. No, Fuck, man. Yeah. So Bell then went to the Mexican League, which was integrated. Between 1938 and 1941, he spent the first two seasons with the team in Tampico, hitting for batting averages of 356 and 354. He split the 1940 season between between teams in Torreon and Veracruz. In that season, Bell became the first Mexican League player to win the Triple Crown, leading the league with a 437 batting average, Holy shit. 12 home runs, and 79 RBI. He finished that year with 167 hits, and eight of his home runs were inside the park home runs. Oh my god! No doubt. And he's like he's like late 30s at this point now too. Yeah, yeah. that's wild. Yeah, he would be. What, well, what year was he born? 1910. So the man that would race horses was scared to race this guy. So even at 35, he is killing it. Yeah, he's just still a speedster. Yeah, Veracruz would win the pennant that year. He spent his last Mexican League season in Monterey. His career Mexican League batting average was 367. Jeez. In 1942, Cool Papa Bell returned to the United States to play for the Chicago American Giants of the Negro American League. He joined the Homestead Grays in the NNL in 1943. The Grays won league championships in Bell's first two seasons. In an attempt at a third consecutive title in 1945, the Grays lost in the league's World Series. Yeah. The 43-year-old hit 396 for the 1946 Grays. Jesus. After hanging up his cleats, Cool Papa coached briefly with the Kansas City Monarchs farm team until 1950. So wait, in his last year, he hit 396? That's right. <laughs> Why do you stop? I mean, ah. So he's, he's, but he's moved on. He's like 43 years old. He's going on to coaching. Yeah. He groomed players for Major League Baseball, influencing such greats as Jackie Robinson, Ernie Banks, and Lou Brock. Yeah, that's a, yep. Yep. That's a good roster. Yep. In the early 1950s, Bell returned to St. Louis where his career had begun and where in 1920 he had met and married his wife, Clara Bell. While segregation prevented Cool Papa Bell from starring in Major League Baseball, he did not have a number of opportunities to play. He did have a number of opportunities to play against major leaguers. Born at least 10 years too early in the major leagues, Bell was never bitter. Quote, funny, but I don't have any regrets about not playing in the majors, he once said. They say that I was born too soon. I say the doors were open too late. That's a fucking sick quote. Yeah. In the 1930s and 1940s, black all-star teams would play white all-star teams while barnstorming across the country. In 54 exhibition games against competitions such as future Hall of Famers Dizzy Dean, Bob Feller, and Bob Lemon, Bell hit 391. <laughs> he averaged one stolen base for every two games. Not bad. In Bell's recollection to Holloway, Earl Mack, son of... The Hall of Fame and baseball manager, Connie Mack, told Bell, quote, if the door was open, you'd be the first guy I'd hire. Years later, Bill Veek, legendary promoter and owner of the Cleveland Indians, ranked Cool Papa Bell alongside Willie Mays and Joe DiMaggio as the greatest center fielders of all time. Yeah, because he probably was. Yeah. 
Bell had a reputation for being meticulous in his dress and work habits and was universally respected by his peers. Well, if your name is Cool Papa, I assume that you dress nice. Yeah. And you... <laughs> you should see pictures of Cool Papa Bell. I'm sure I You can. should look some up. We'll find some. Yeah. Bell, who grew up in Pol... Bell, who grew up poor in Starkville, said, quote, My mother always told me that it didn't make any difference about the color of my skin or how much money I had. The only thing that counted was to be an honest, clean-living man who cared about other people. I've always tried to live up to those words. Aren't moms fucking great? Yeah. They're just... Yeah. You have a good mom, you got a, you got a good life. Like, yeah, wow. Yeah. Teammate Ted Page remembered Bell as, quote, an even better man off the field than he was on it. He was honest. He was kind. He was a clean liver. In fact, in all the years I've known him, I never seen him smoke, take a drink, or even say a cuss word. Well, I've already fucked up most of those things during this podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, cool papa. <laughs> After Bell's playing and managing days were over, Bell lived in an old red brick apartment in St. Louis. He worked as a scout for the St. Louis Browns for four years. Then he served as a security officer and custodian at St. Louis City Hall until 1970. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1974. His Hall of Fame plaque highlights the fact that Bell's contemporaries regarded him as the fastest runner on the base paths. He was the fifth Negro League player inducted to the Hall of Fame behind Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Monty Irvin, and Buck Leonard. Wow. Bell graciously appeared at the annual induction ceremonies year after year and received ovations from the fans. His obituary in the New York Times noted that when told about his election, Bell said it was his biggest honor but not his biggest thrill. That, he said, quote, was when they opened the door in the majors to black players. The St. Louis Cardinals have recognized Bell's contributions by erecting a bronze statue of him outside Bush Stadium along with other Hall of Fame St. Louis baseball stars including Stan Musial, Lou Brock, and Bob Gibson. References to Bell appeared in Hanging Curve by <laughs> Troy Sue's a 1999 <laughs> novel about the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. What? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, <laughs> it seemed like this was like a bibliography note. I don't remember like you, writing you're this just down, like taking notes down, and just, yeah. I mean, it sounds like I'm like, oh, that sounds like a cool baseball book. <laughs> what? Yeah, no. All right. He was also noted in the 1994 movie Cobb, in which Ty Cobb was played by Tommy Lee Jones, is chided for being a lesser player than Bell. <laughs> His character makes a brief appearance in the 2009 feature film The Perfect Game, encouraging and aiding the 1957 Little League World Series champion team from Monterey, Mexico. The role is played by Lou Gossett Jr. I need to see that movie now. Yep. In 1999, Bell was ranked 66th on the Sporting News list of baseball's greatest players, one of five players so honored who played all or most of his career in the Negro Leagues and was nominated for the Major League Baseball All-Century team. Bell suffered a heart attack and died at St. Louis University Hospital on March 7, 1991. His wife Clara had died a few weeks earlier. In his honor, Dixon Street, on which he lived, was renamed James Cool Papa Bell Avenue. That's a, we need to, yeah, if we ever go to, we St. Go to Louis, St. Louis, we'll, 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 we will find this. He was also inducted into the St. Louis Walk of Fame, 
Cool Papa Bell Drive is the road leading into the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame and Museum in Jackson, Mississippi, of which he is a member. Bell was posthumously inducted into the Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame and Museum in 1995. The road leading to the museum off Lakeland Drive in Jackson is named after him uh, because uh, the marker... Fuck. <laughs> you lost your point? Yeah, I lost my well, This point dude's here. got lots of streets named yeah. after him. Yeah. I feel like that's like a measurement of our society. Yeah. Here we go. In 1999, author Willie Morris and Buck O'Neill, representing the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, dedicated a historical marker honoring Bell in Starkville. The marker is located at the Little League Baseball Park to show that there was once a little boy from Starkville, Mississippi, who ran so fast, he made it all the way to the Hall of Fame. Holy shit. Yeah. I, I was... I have to say I was concerned, A, because I felt we were a little rusty off the top, and I was just like, well, this is interesting. So, But, like, wow, that, that story went places I did not expect mm-hmm. it to go. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's just it just makes you sad. Yeah, it wasn't, like, as wild a story as some of the other stories we've done, but it's just... I mean, it just makes you sad because we would, like, I, I didn't really know... You know, I'd heard the name. We've watched Baseball by Ken Burns. You know, I'm... I'm sure, you know, but casual baseball fans, I'm sure, don't know the name as well. And if he had, as he says, if integration had happened 10 years earlier, mm-hmm. he would be up there with the, you know, the Jackie Robinsons and, and everybody that that came before. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, he would probably be more of a household name. Well, no doubt, especially if he was, like, it sounds like he was like just ridiculous and not only just fast but he could actually hit for power and mm-hmm. an average mm-hmm. and you know he was just i don't know that sounds that was amazing so yeah well we're gonna end it there i guess and uh tune in next time uh i believe the next story you'll probably hear is actually about somebody who had a street name taken away from them oh <laughs> so uh, well, uh we're gonna End it there. This has been uh, Ed's telling me about Cool Papa Bell. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. And uh, we were doing some baseball. Tune in next time. Follow us on Twitter. Doing baseball. Love it. Bye.